Good morning. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 32, all the way through 5, 11. I just reminded of the song there, Salvation, What a Priceless Gift. Hmm. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came, when the young man came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, We come before you with hearts of thanksgiving. First, Lord, for for giving us a giving us one heart and one soul together in Christ as a church around this globe, that we know that there's other believers that are worshiping today with us. Thank you for providing a a Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. Thank you for providing your son who died on the cross for us. 
who paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, Father. Lord, we thank you for being able to live in a country that has an overabundance, it seems, of monetary wealth so that we might care for our brothers and sisters around this world. Lord, we ask that you would be with Pastor Cody today. Um, ask that you would help him to preach your word correctly. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I'm entitled this sermon, The Care and Concern of the Church. And this is one of those titles that as soon as I had it written up for the bulletin and it went to print, I immediately thought I need to change that title. So I'm not going to change it, but I am going to make a just a slight clarification. When we say the care of the church here, we're not meaning about provision, but attention. Or the attention and concern of the church is what we have before us this morning in Acts chapter 4. Uh, beginning in verse 32 and then all the way taking in our study through verse 11 of chapter 5. What makes a pure church? What, what brings unity to a church? What brings, what makes the church a clear witness for Christ? Well, I think very clearly in our passage this morning, the unity, purity, and witness of the church stems from hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, we can say lots about uh, what makes individual churches uh, unified, and, and there are these things to be uh, said in terms of local churches and statements of faith and all those things, and those things are good. But we have to first begin with the unity of the church begins with hearts that have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Or you could say the unity of the church is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And when that unity is there, the witness of the church and the purity of the church, and a lot of these things fall in line. And yet, as we see in contrast to the purity and unity and witness of the church in chapter 4 and chapter 5, if, if sin is allowed in the church, it can break that unity. And we'll look at that this morning. Two points, if you're taking notes, may be helpful for you. We're going to look at the care of the church, very simply in verse 32 through 37, and then we'll look at the concern of the church in the following passage there in chapter 5, 1 through 11. We have in our in our Bibles or before you a, a threefold description of the early church. We've been studying Acts for a while now, and it seems as if uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer Luke, we have arrived to a point where there is this bringing together of much that has been going on. There's no uh, time markers in here. We don't know how long this is taking place. It doesn't seem as if it's just one small occurrence, but it's something that has been taking place for a time. Maybe quite a time. And we have this description, and you'll see it there in your Bible. First of all, what they have is church unity. They have church unity and the light of God's ownership. Look at that with me in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now that full number is not a small number. It's at minimum 5,000, which is what we saw took place in chapter 4, verse 4, in our previous study under the preaching of the word. Over 5,000 came to Jesus Christ. It is a wonder that you have, for 
the size of FCF, a mega church, 5,000 with this amount of unity. Full number. Seeing God's ownership, they were of one heart and soul, and let's include mind in that as well. Psalm 50, verse 10 and 11, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. They recognized that everything they had did not belong to them, but it had been given to them to be cared for. They were responsible for these things, but ultimately, the ownership of all their things was God, even their salvation. Even their salvation had been given them by grace. They didn't have anything of their own. They've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And in that they had recognized God's ownership over all things. It must be said that effective witness requires unity. When a house divided against itself cannot stand. Scripture tells us. FCF, we should be those who are vigilant to guard our unity and doctrine and extend grace and patience in areas of preference. This requires humility that springs from an understanding of the gracious giving of God to our church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity as a church doesn't lie in our worship style. That may be something you like, and that's fine. But that's not where our unity lies. You may prefer to educate your children in a certain way or method, and that's fine. But that's not where our unity lies. You may enjoy many of the hobbies that Others around you enjoy And that's fine. But that's not where our unity lies. Our unity lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity lies in the clear doctrines of scripture. This is one of the reasons why as a church, if you're a member here, you you sign a statement of faith. Saying, this is where my unity lies. These truths are what are most important. And we're going to allow diversity in other areas. So the first description of the early church is this great unity in light of God's ownership. The second one is, notice what is happening with the leaders of the church. Verse 33, and great power, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. We saw last week they prayed for boldness. Here's the answer to that prayer. Don't pass over this idea that they're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the face of that opposition, they're preaching boldly, with great power. They're preaching to the conscience, you might say. They're not willing to just say, hey, by the way, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But they're pressing that in to the individual that's hearing them in order that they might have to respond to what are they going to do about not believing these things. Powerful preaching by the church leaders. Proclaiming these things with boldness. A third description. They were caring for those that were needy among them. Maybe the apostles specifically had remembered back in their time with Christ in Mark chapter 14. When Christ has this woman come and anoint his head. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. And some of them indignantly respond by saying, whoa, whoa, that's a lot of money. He says this, 
But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. He had ascended. He'd gone up to be with them. To be away from them. To return one day to be with them. But now they had the poor and they were caring for those that were needy among them. How were they doing that? Well, notice what they were doing. Some owned lands and houses. Not all owned lands and houses. Some owned lands and houses. And they voluntarily, not under compulsion, sold the property. And then they would bring the proceeds to the church fathers who had the responsibility of knowing the needy and distributing to the needy. It doesn't say they brought the proceeds and everybody got a, a you know, an equal share. $5,000 divided by 5000 because there's 5000 in the church. and Everybody's going to get it. No, no, no. Not everybody's getting a piece of this pie. It's those that are needy. And the church fathers, the apostles, apparently recognize who is needy. It's, it's something to be said that the church has always been cared for. Uh, God always cares for his people. We could go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. God's always provided for his people. And he's using now one of those means as the church to provide for believers. This is one of the reasons why as a church when you look at our budget you see a benevolence fund. Why? We're caring for those that are needy. We want to be those who imitate this witness of caring for those who Christ has cared for. So we have this threefold description of our early church. And then we have this illustrated example of such a description. And this is where Barnabas comes into play. He's this son of encouragement. He's a Levite. And it seems that the law prohibiting priests to own property had gone away by this time. He owns this piece of property, he sells it, and he brings the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. We talked about on Wednesday night as we looked at this passage, it is, it is amazing that in the writing of Acts, there's these little hints, little pieces of information that kind of give us anticipation of something that's still to come. We're not going to see Barnabas again for another four chapters. He won't come around till again till Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter nine. But here he is, seen as a son of encouragement, seen as one who is doing all of these things. He's in unity. He's under the preaching of the word. He's caring for the needy that are among them. We could sum up the entirety of this by simply saying the early church is showing radical fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is in stark contrast to the darkness of unbelief that is around them. We're going to see that here in a moment. But it it is a wonder what is going on here. I mean, who cares for needy? Listen, I love my money as much as anybody else does. I don't want to give it away. for, And that's what the world says constantly. But here these people are caring for the needy. Why are they submitting themselves to, to, to the teaching of Scripture? That's weird. Who are these people? And this isn't a small group, 5,000. The early church is showing radical fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is manifesting itself. And that hasn't stopped. 
by the way. We're 2019 and that still is the case. Jesus Christ, by the power of his work in and through us, delights to witness to a lost and dying world through the church, through the church, through the work of the church, the love of one another for one another in the church. For the fact that you parked your car in some parking lot on a hill and walked in and spent an hour and a half doing this. That's a witness to the world. The concern of the church. This is point number two. This is in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. At this point in our study of Acts, the early church has no indication of infighting or disunity. There's no mention of sin or false teaching. And yet it must be noted that like the Garden of Eden, this euphoric state was not hidden from the scheming devices of the devil. Who, if he could not destroy their witness via persecution and opposition, he would bide his time deviously working upon the hearts of men and women. Like Judas in the life of Christ and others before him, Satan is not concerned to let some time pass and even fruit be born for God if he might be able to steal, kill and destroy the slimmest of chances and he'll give it time and here we have the first recorded sin publicly dealt with in the church in chapter 5 and it's an illustrated example in contrast to what's taking place with Barnabas I was studying this passage this week and I was struck by the great lengths that were taken to Explain this passage in a palatable manner. And I must be honest, I'm under the same desire. To soften the blow that is in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. This is a raw and disturbing passage. This is, this is not for the faint of heart. And a warning should be applied across this passage. This is, this is not for those who are queasy. It is a difficult passage to deal with. Let's look at this. We have these two people, husband and wife. They're not mentioned again in all of scripture. Ananias and Sapphira. They have a piece of property. They sell the piece of property. Apparently Ananias contrives a plan to keep some of the proceeds. And his wife has knowledge of that. Meaning his wife is affirming of that. He's going to keep back some of the proceeds. And then when he goes and takes the other portion of the money. And lays it at the apostles feet. He's going to do so with the desire that everybody recognize that he's laying all of the money at their feet. He's not holding some of it back. He's laying it all at their feet. Okay. And Sapphire are you with me on this? Yes. And we're, we're going to take, we're going to hold back 25%, picking a number. We're going to give 75%. Wink, wink. We're going to make sure everybody looks like we've got 100% down. You good with that? Yeah, I'm good with that. Look what happens. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
You didn't have to give all of it. You could have given the 75%. That's fine. That's at your disposal. And just said, this, we're keeping this, we're giving this. It's fine. But instead, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, Peter, where is the grace that you received from Jesus Christ? You got another chance. You denied him three times. You got another chance. Where is it? It's not here. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And then Luke records for us what seems to be just a drop in verse, but it's clear why it's there. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Just in case you were concerned or wondering if he just fainted. Maybe he just fell over because of heat exhaustion or he was surprised and he just went down. No, they buried him. He's dead. He's no longer with us. Who knows? The heat of that culture may have required him to do it quickly, but apparently time passes, three hours, and the word hasn't gotten back to Sapphira. She comes before Peter. Peter offers her the chance to repent. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Here's her moment. Here's her chance. She said yes for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is heavy. These two have a desire to be perceived in a certain way. They are doing what is necessary to propagate such a view while all the while doing something different. They're hypocrites. Proverbs 15, verse 9 and 10. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. It's clear. And this isn't the first time this has happened in Scripture. It's the first time we've seen it recorded in Acts. But if we go back to the Old Testament, those who approached God inappropriately with hearts that were not right lost their life. Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each take a censer and they put fire in it. And they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. They don't worship him as he has commanded. And what happens? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. In Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of post-Jericho. Joshua and Achan. And Achan goes and takes some of the things that they were supposed to completely eradicate. And he hides it. And he gets stoned before all the people. You may remember in Second Kings, you have Elisha. And Naaman, and Naaman goes and he dips himself in the Jordan River and he is healed. And yet Elisha's servant is, is got a, a heart that desires the riches of the world. And he lies and Gehazi ends up with leprosy and his family for the remainder of his days. When you look at scripture, what you're, what you're going to see is God deals with 
sin in ways that are disturbing. Uh, that don't fit our political correctness. That don't fit our fairness. And he often deals with it in ways that are very quick. John Bunyan offers us this description, if you will, of sin. He says this, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. That is sin. And when we strip our our couching our sin in a in a in a kind and soft way and you're left with the rawness of it, it is disturbing. God hates sin, and his passion for the purity of his bride, present and future tense, here in this passage, overrides one's individual fairness at a second chance. Our sinful heart motivations are first toward God and then toward man. Children, this is one of the reasons why when you have a bad attitude in your home, oftentimes your parents will tell you, you need to go first and pray and seek the Lord. Because your first sin is before God. That's the one that bears the greatest burden. And then to men. We should be reminded that our sinful heart motivations, if not dealt with through confession and repentance, will eventually be made public. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. Parents, our such deceptions, whatever they may be, will be exposed publicly in the lives of our children. The sins of my life, no matter how well I seek to hide them, are going to be evident to you in coming years because you're going to see them in my children. My children will expose them to you. Thus all the more should be the passion for all of us to keep short accounts with God and others and lest our permissiveness toward a particular sin take root and bear fruit in the next generation. Psalm 94, 7 through 9. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? We as Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Proverbs 15, verse 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. We act the fool when we think we have hidden well our sin. God knows these things. And it's even been seen now. We have the sovereignty of Google who knows those things as well. Proverbs 16, verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Brothers and sisters, I, I have a list in front of me here of sins, and I'm not going to read them. But I want to just encourage us. Let's be those who are not seeking to justify our sin. Uh, we can take biblical sins and we can, we, we can put nicer words on them. Uh, laziness. It's not rest. You know, anxiety is not a concern for the future. Let's take it biblically for what it is. And let's seek to eradicate it from our lives. 
Because what we have here is allowed sin breaks unity in the church. And thus there is this concern to remove sin. Peter's not the one who kills Ananias and Sapphira. That's God's business. But he is confronting them in their sin and not allowing it to be openly propagated. The sin-crushing blood of Jesus Christ dealing with our sin allows for the unity in Christ that the church has always enjoyed. Let me say that again. The sin-crushing blood of Jesus Christ dealing with our sin allows for the unity in Christ that the church has always enjoyed. And you can notice here in our passage the fruitfulness in response to these deaths. And there is a lot of grace in chapter 5, 1 through 11, but it's in a form we don't recognize. Verse 6, great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Proverbs 14, verse 2, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Proverbs 14, verse 12 and 27, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Here in verse 11, we have the first time a Greek word is used in the testimony of Acts. Ekklesia. It's the Greek word for church or the Greek word for congregation. And what you have here is a people, 5,000 plus, who are congregated around the truth of Christ, having taken death for them. And that is why we are congregated this morning. Because Christ has taken death for us. And all of us, without Christ, would have already breathed our last and be taken out and buried. If not for the grace of God. And he in his patience has has held that wrath back in order that many may come to him in repentance. This, this fear over death that is taking place here. Notice not just the church that is fearing. One, that is the case. But two, it's all around them that is also fearing. That is a good thing to fear God. I shared with some of you my testimony. That at a young age, waking in the middle of the night, my parents having preached the gospel to me, waking in the middle of the night, in my bunk bed, I can see the room now in my mind, knowing if God returned at that moment, I was bound for hell because of my sin. That was fearful to me. And it was grace. It drove me to look to Christ. Knowing his impending punishment on my sin. And he offers Christ. Unbeliever, if you are not, if you do not know Christ this morning, will you in your fear run to Christ? There's no indication that those who feared, all those who heard these things, there's no indication that they feared and ran to Christ. Maybe some did, maybe some didn't, but the offer is there. That that fear can be taken by the blood of Jesus Christ. That that sin that that causes that wrath of God to come upon you can be removed. Unless your fear of death and the wrath of God against you as a sinner. Let your fear of death and the wrath of God against you as a sinner. Drown in the sin conquering shed blood of Jesus Christ. This fear that they have is, is proceeding from a swift justice of a holy God. And yet may that. Be the impetus, the grace that pushes us to yet again see Christ who's all for us. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, 
then this can be said of you. Jeremiah 32 verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That's you as a believer. The Holy Spirit who has done the work of taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh has given you a heart that has fear written on it and it's appropriate fear. It's a fear of God. So let me in closing remind you of three things, brothers and sisters, for you this morning. First of all, I want you to know and be reminded that Jesus Christ has taken death for you. He has taken death for you. That for those in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That the punishment of sin and his death has already been paid for us. Number two, that those in Christ are to be like Christ. If the first is justification, the second is sanctification. That is, we are to pursue the eradication of sin within our lives. Allowed sin creates disunity. The means of grace, as Proverbs remind us, is the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of how to view life as God views life. James 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you're a believer here this morning, that's true for you. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you have not had your sin dealt with by the cross of Christ, that's not true of you. So what's the application there for those in Christ are to be like Christ? Well, we are to fear God. We are to fear the consequences of sin. That's a means of grace. We are to respond to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit when under conviction. We're to repent of known sin. And that may be that some of us, probably all of us, should be on our knees this afternoon doing business with God and with others if he's so convicting you. We're to keep short accounts. We're to be about the business of unity in Christ, the preaching of the word, the caring for the needy. You have these two passages in contrast to one another. You could say you can give yourself to sin or you can give yourself to to all that God Enables the church to do. It's been said before, if you're doing the right things, you have far less time to do the wrong ones. So let's be about the business of unity in Christ, the preaching of the word, the caring for the needy. And there's a lot of work to be done there. Third thing I want to remind you about is that you have the Holy Spirit within you. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit We have the Holy Spirit within us. And that is a praise that should never stop. We should be those this week that are quick to respond to his gracious promptings. And if you're like me, maybe those promptings have to come pretty hard. Because we're hard-headed, rebellious people. But let's be quick to respond to those gracious promptings. We have here a picture of the unity, the purity, and the witness of the church springing from hearts that have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, the church here has dealt with this sin. They've confronted it, and God is the one who uh, did the work of eradicating it here. But it should be noted that the church was dealing with it. And we should be those who are dealing with our sin as well. It's a testimony to the church, to the, to the world around us. That, that yes, we're imperfect like they are, but 
We're pursuing the holiness of God. And we're not okay with our sin. We're not those who want to explain it away. Yeah, it was just a, just a one night thing. It was just, it was better than it was last week. No. Let's get away from those things. Let's be those who are hating our sin as God hates our sin. And yet let the, let, let us be those who are, who are continually reminded and in recognition and enabled by the grace that comes from recognizing that Jesus Christ took our death for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Is these times that we study scripture that it leaves us, it leaves us feeling heavy. And may we not move so quickly to offload that weight. It's a good thing that you have called us by your word to reflect upon the holiness of God, the holiness of you, our Father, the the purity that you call all men to. And Father, what a joy it is to know that you have given us the purity of Jesus Christ. But we're also, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we, we know that there's that work that you called us to as well. You've saved us and you've called us to, to good works in, in Ephesians chapter 2. You've called us to live in the light of the purity of Jesus Christ. And we want to remember, Father, this morning and, and let the, the passage by the grace of your Holy Spirit uh, be, be upon our hearts appropriately. May we be those who fear you. Uh, may we be those who run from and fight against our sin. May we not be those, Father, that are permissive of it but that we would take, do the hard thing and deal with it. Father, what a glorious picture you offer for us in the in, in this same passage of the witness of the church. That, that because of their willingness to confront sin, it called many to see and, and know who you as God are. Because of their their unity and one heart and one soul, because of their giving of themselves as leaders to preaching and and those to to listen to the the preaching of the word and the caring for one another within the church. What what a beautiful witness this was to a dark world around them. And it's, it's a witness that you still use today. And we're delighted that you have chosen us to be a part of that. And Father, we would, we would ask that you would help us to, to continue to do that. What a joy it is to be able to hear even in a moment, turn to our brother and sister to the right or left and, and care for them. Maybe not monetarily, but encourage them in the word and pray with them. Be strengthened by them in our mutual love for Christ. Father, we thank you for, for sending your son for us, for saving us, for giving us the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the 
the delight in knowing that Christ will one day return and we will be with him for all of eternity. Help us this coming week. May we be those who continue to press toward the mark, to press forward to the high calling of Jesus Christ. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.